0: Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. If you've been enjoying our show and haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what it's like to listen to our episodes. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time. And thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who already left a review. On that note, I want to shout out the wave who loves tea, who left a five star review all the way from Denmark. This storyteller wrote, while looking into my favorite author's writing routine last fall, a Google search led me to 88 cups of tea. During the past couple of months, I have been making my way through all the episodes and now that I am finally caught up, I don't know what to do with myself until the next episode airs. Yin is a fantastic host who asks the most interesting and thoughtful questions. Not only has her podcast provided me with a greater knowledge of the publishing industry and the writing process. But through this podcast, I have also discovered a lot of amazing new storytellers whom I wouldn't have otherwise come across. And for that, I am so grateful. Thank you, Yin, and the rest of the 88 Cups of Tea team for providing me with the inspiration and confidence I need to get back into writing. Maybe I'll one day find the courage to join your private Facebook group from a Scandinavian storyteller. P.S. If the fact that this podcast is absolutely amazing wasn't enough, I also happen to love the number 88 as well as drinking tea. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for taking the time to write such a thoughtful and sweet review. I am... I am so touched not only for your kind words about our efforts here at 88 Cups of Tea, but that you also took the time to thank my team. And that means so much to me because they work really, really hard and I would not be able to continue 88 Cups of Tea without my team or my community. And thank you as well for writing this review all the way from Denmark. That is so cool. And I hope to see you in our private Facebook group sooner than later. Alrighty, storytellers, for those of you who are curious about the private Facebook group that we were just talking about, this is the perfect space for those of you who want to feel connected to fellow storytellers, especially those who are fellow podcast listeners of 88 Cups of Tea. We check in on the daily and they're super chill, casual check-ins ranging from our work in progress posts to our threads dedicated just for our wins our book recommendation threads, and so much more. So if you're not already in our private Facebook group, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Now for today's new episode, we have award-winning author Samira Ahmed, author of Love, Hate, and Other Filters, Internment, and her newest novel that just released in early April, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know. Her poetry, essays, and short stories have also appeared in anthologies. In Samira's episode, we discuss her childhood experience growing up in small-town America, how different groups of people are targeted throughout history, and how to safely confront racism by using our power and privilege for a purpose. We then unpack Samira's career path from working in education to becoming a full-time writer, how she learned to construct a novel, how she discovered the inner workings of the publishing world, and what the process of finding a literary agent was like for her. We get into the creative ways to fit in time for your writing even with a busy schedule, the importance of saying yes to yourself and your dreams, and why it's crucial to be gentle with the language you use towards your writing, especially with your first draft. Further in, we chat about her newly released novel Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, the inspiration behind the story and her writing process for crafting dual POVs. And Samira wraps up our conversation with a creative assignment for our listeners that will help you make progress towards your writing goals. Samira also created an exclusive writing prompt just for our 88 Cups of Tea listeners, and you can download this bonus content over on her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash samira Ahmed. And just a quick note, we recorded this conversation on March 7th. Be sure to catch Samira's Instagram story takeover on our Instagram at 88 cups of tea. Now let's dive right in. As you know, we always start off every podcast episode with how you first fell in love with storytelling and your earliest memory possible. I always love tracing all the way back from that first memory. So
1: I'm going to start with my birth
0: because yes okay from the time you were a fetus (laughs) yes
1: exactly I was seven cells (laughs) no so I'm gonna start with my birth because my name Samira um in my sort of parental interpretation of it Samira means storyteller what yeah so the word Samira actually comes from both from the Arabic and it sort of you know how language transfers like over geography or whatever and so Urdu which is the the first language I spoke and is the language of my family I was born in India actually so Urdu is our first language and so Urdu borrows a lot from Arabic, from Persian and from like Sanskrit roots like Hindi. So Samira um, sort of in the Arabic version means like entertaining evening conversationalist. What? <laughs> and the way my parents, so how that gets interpreted into Urdu was storyteller. And so my mom, when I was little, was always like, this is just the perfect name for you because you never stop talking. And <laughs> it has come to pass that the name actually fit very, very well. <laughs> and so I think that it was like a lo- I mean, I'm not totally one of those people who believes 100% just in destiny because they believe you make your own destiny in a lot of ways. But this is one where I was like, hmm, the stars did align on this one. (laughs) Like I was saying, just like with you and I finally being able to talk on this podcast. So yeah, my name (laughs) is like sort of, I feel like my name is literally the genesis of my relationship to the concept of stories. And I was an early reader and I loved reading and I lived really close to the library. Now, when my parents, we moved to America when I was just like a year old, so I don't really have a memory of India so much as a, as a baby. I was really, you know, I don't have a memory of that. But yeah. I grew up in a very small town, which was pretty much almost all white. We were the first Indians to live in the town. I'm not Whoa. even kidding. You. I know. <laughs> but one thing that was close by was the library. So I was walking distance from the library and I would go, you know, that was like back in the day where like seven-year-olds would walk by themselves to the library yes. or I would take my yes. <laughs> I mean, you know what, actually, I think Sona was talking about this on her episode with you because she was saying how she and her sister would walk to the library. I mean, that's what I did. And I had like this little bike, like with a banana seat, the <laughs> yeah. so retro yeah. and um, go to the bike. It was like two blocks from my house and I would just spend so much time at the library and I would just reading so much and library when I was a kid um, in my hometown, which was Batavia, Illinois, Batavia Public Library was actually in this old Victorian mansion.
0: Wow.
1: And it had been renovated into a library. So there were sometimes these cool rooms. And there was this one room that had like this big, I guess it was a non-working or a fake fireplace. Now, it's hard to remember because it's a totally different <laughs> building. And then uh, there were like these big chairs. And, you know, when you're a kid, I'm sure they're probably regular-sized chairs. But in my mind's eye, you know, as you're a kid, it seems like one of those big, like kind of clubby, like leather. It was probably fake leather. Pleather. <laughs> um, <laughs> chairs. And I would get a lot of mystery books. And like go and sit in these armchairs, you know, these big oversized chairs by the fake fireplace and read in the library.
0: What kind of stories do you always find yourself gravitating towards at that library? By the way, what an amazing background setup, the entire environment of that library. I'm kind of jealous. It, it feels so like a movie set. Like, what? My library was dirty as hell and not like that, okay? <laughs>
1: I mean, my library, now the library in that my old hometown is, you know, they built, like, it's much bigger. They built like a brand new library and it's, it's great, but it was kind of fun to have this kind of old town, like small town America, like library. So I read a lot of, I don't know why I read a lot of mysteries like Agatha Christie. And of course I read like Little House on the Prairie, which is so racist, which I didn't know till later. You know, when you're a kid, you kind of aren't totally aware of it. Somehow, I guess in my mind, I was like, somehow Laura Ingalls Wilder is helping me become an American. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. I don't know.
0: Yes. Yes. I totally get that. Were you even aware though?
1: We were really the first Indians in the town. I mean, there was literally an article in the newspaper about us, what? Like, like Indian family moves to Batavia, Illinois or whatever. What? And also it was kind of weird because my mom was growing this sunflower in our house, yeah. like in our yard. And it was like this giant sunflower, like nine feet tall or something. And so there was, it was like this match. So there's like this picture of me as like this little girl, like three years old, like, and my mom, I think is holding me up. God, I can't remember. And she's like, I'm, I'm reaching for the top of the sunflower in this black and white picture, and it's like, hey, the, you know, the Ahmads who are the first Indians to move to our town.
0: It's- What? That is such a bizarre thing to-
1: weird. So I think I always had some awareness, but I think, you know, also when you're a kid, you try to like tune out some of the noise because like, you know, what you just said was, I wasn't aware of it until I was made to be aware of it. You know, by incidents that happened to you where it would be like someone saying your name wrong or somebody like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure kids made fun of your name all the time. Yeah. Like say same, or, you know, just where, I mean, I was the only Indian in my school and I think, let's see, I was definitely the only, not just the only Indian, the only Asian. Okay. Mm. And you know, Asian is like, I always think this is, it's just a hard term because it it encompasses just such a giant geographical space area, like a physical geographical space on the globe, plus a huge amount of humanity, the amount of cultures and languages. And it's not a great term, but it's the one we have, like Asian American. Yes. Yes. Obviously, we have some commonalities of culture. Like you and I, I'm sure, could talk for like six hours about things that our aunties have told us. Yes.
0: Oh, please. Our parents, how we were raised. Oh, yes. We could go on for days. Why aren't you a doctor? Yes, exactly. Oh, you don't want to be a doctor? It's okay. You can be a lawyer. Exactly. Exactly.
1: (laughs) So, yes, we do have some commonality of experience, but it's always just such a weird thing. But in that case, yes, I was the only Indian. I was the only Asian in the class. And for the most part, I was the only kid of color too. In my elementary school, there was, in my memory, there was one young black boy who was there. And there was, I think a Latina girl, but I I don't even remember her name. So I don't even know if that's actually correct. (laughs) He's had brown hair and brown nurse skin. Can you imagine? She's like, excuse me, I'm Italian. Probably could be. She could be like, Samira, I'm Sicilian, what are you talking about? So I don't know. I don't know. But I think in my mind's eye, she was yes. something different. And maybe it's because I heard her like speak to her parents in Spanish or something. Because mm. you know, English wasn't my first language. Urdu is my first language. Yes. And when I started nursery school, I was writing my name with the English letters, but I was writing it backwards from right to left because Urdu yes. script is similar to Arabic or Persian in that it's written from right to left. And, you know, at that time there was like no like English language learners and, you know, English as a second language. That, all that stuff didn't really exist. And I think my nursery school teacher kind of was freaking out and was like, I think she's dyslexic. Oh. And my mom was like, no, just chill out about it. She'll figure it out because she can speak two languages.
0: Yeah, she's smart. <laughs> that's why (laughs) it's
1: just going to work out. So don't worry about it too much. Like just tell her like, you know, for the English letters, you write them from left to right. And we'll tell the, the same thing at home because of that happening so young at the age of three or four, I did have some, you know, awareness that I was different. Plus, you know, we were the only Muslims too. And so we didn't celebrate Christian holidays.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
1: And of course I totally wanted to, Because I wanted gifts. Like, you know, you're just in this town where you're literally isolated and Ramadan, which is, you know, the month of fasting for Muslims is our biggest holiday. And it ends with this big festival Eid and it is based on the lunar calendar. So it moves by roughly 10 days to two weeks every year. Mm. And so one year, honestly, I can't remember which it was like in the seventies. It was so long ago, Ramadan and Christmas kind of overlapped a little bit. Oh, Okay. So we got to have like a little celebration and my parents got what we called the Eve tree. And it was a white Christmas tree, you know, like these retro white. Yes. And we put like blue ornaments on it. And, you know, we put our Eve gifts under the tree. So it was like this weird amalgam, you know, mixing all of these traditions. But I think it's because, you know, I was so little. I mean, I was really young when that happened. And, you know, in those early days of like Asian immigration to the states cuz really it was after 1965 that the kind of the floodgates opened even though there of course had been Asian Americans in the US or you know Asian immigration in the US before that and in, in you know the the 19th century etc but then it got closed off like the Chinese exclusion act exactly. and all those things but then in 1965 they kind of loosened some of the laws and there was what they call the brain drain from Asia to the US you know of course the US was only accepting very specific Asians, like Asians with college degrees or like doctors, you know, like just professionals only. That's what they wanted. But at that time, you know, you, it was still, there were still not a lot of us. So I think, you know, it was that weird tension of trying to assimilate because of course, for parents who had small children, they didn't want their kids to stand out. To stand out means that you were at risk of being bullied, at risk of being hurt. You know, in coming to this country, and I'm sure you have like family stories like this too, like, what do the parents want for us? They want stability, safety, and long-term security. Yep. You know, just these basics. Yep. Every, I mean, every parent wants those for their kids, but especially, I think, when you're an immigrant, it probably just must always feel, like, so much anxiety about that. You know, and I think the way schools were, they didn't want us to have, like, our first language. They wanted us to just be English speakers, and we tried to do as much as we could to assimilate... And in that process, you know, you end up losing some of your culture or you try to make do so that your kid, who is the only Muslim kid in a whole town, literally the only ones in a town, you want them to try to still feel good about their own holidays and culture. But you want to still be able to give them something that they feel like they're missing out on because it's just the normative around them. And, you know, we're kind of doing our best. (laughs) And so we have our Eve tree. And I know, you know, I think probably a lot of Muslims would be listening to this like, oh my God, how could they do that? And I'm like, well, look, they just were doing their best. And it was like a happy memory for me. And I got to be like, yeah, this is my E rate. Besides, I don't know, maybe that's why I am like a total sucker for Christmas decorations. Yes. I mean, I don't celebrate the holiday, but I'm like, dang, I love all these
0: scented candles at Target for Christmas. It's so nostalgic. And here's the thing, like, you're not the only one with this because my family, even though I was born and raised... Buddhist. My family is still very Buddhist. My entire family and relatives are obsessed with Christmas. They find it as an excuse to have a party to bring the family together. We have a Christmas tree, you know, similar to your Eve tree. And also, my mom keeps that tree up. She'll leave the tree on the entire year. Like the oh my whole God. <laughs> year. Well, hold up. The whole freaking year. Not only that, but it brings my family so much joy. They'll put all these Christmas lights on because it's just so happy for them. And then my mom, be like, all right, take down the Christmas decor. She's gonna put that Chinese New Year festivity ornaments on there. Nice. Red packets over there. I'm telling take it down. It's Valentine's Day. She's gonna put some heart shaped cards, red decor. So, okay, it's Valentine's Day tree now. And then she'll take it down. Easter, we don't even celebrate Easter, she'll just put Easter eggs. It's funny because you were mentioning you just love the decor, the or and all that stuff. I'm like, oh my god, that's so I need to share you know, the story. You're not alone. Trust me.
1: Thank you. Yes, I mean, your mom seems to just take great joy from from it. So I'm just like, hey, more power to her. Like, yeah. you know, get get your get your Easter egg ornaments <laughs> exactly. up there. I mean, get your shamrocks up there. You know, like yeah. whatever holiday it is. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think because. In India, there is a lot of joy and celebratory around celebrations, right? Especially like weddings. And if you, I remember as a kid going to my uncle's wedding and the houses are like decked out in all of these strings of lights. And even if you go like the little auto rickshaws or, you know, some people come tuk-tuks, some of the tuk-tuk drivers, they like completely go all out decorating and bling out their little rickshaws, you know? Nice. I love it. First of all, they're like painted. There can be like lights. Like there can be I mean, I don't even know. I guess I must have like battery operated now. But you know, <laughs> there's a lot of like shiny stuff and glitter. And this is like Indians, this is just sort of a, a Pan South Asian term that that we use to to inco- incorporate not just Indians but Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans, you know, et cetera. So I think we just also love shiny, glittery, decorative things. I mean, look at our jewelry and look at our look at like our wedding clothes. And so yes. I think also for my family, when they came here, they also came from a culture like where my grandparents also love to like just celebrate and decorate for you know, for Eid, for weddings, for kids' birthdays. Like, people would have, like, garlands of flowers, you know, like lays wow. the Indian version. And they're mostly, like, roses and jasmine. And there's veils of, uh, like, floral veils that like wow. they would put around people's heads. I mean, they smell so good. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so I think especially, like, for those early Indians who came here, for the early, you know, Muslims who came here, it was like, well, this culture doesn't... <laughs> celebrate the shiny things as much as they, as we do at home, but at least have like strong lights up at Christmas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I need to know then like just overall growing up, it was made very clear that you were the only family there that you felt like just looked so different from everybody else around you. What was that like? Like, how was that environment for you? Yeah. So I
1: definitely faced some of that, you know, from other kids. And I think, you know, when other kids like bully you, they don't exactly even know why they're doing it, but they just know that you're the one who's more different than they are and they can deflect anything that might be coming in their way towards you. And, you know, I really hold adults much more responsible than small kids. And I definitely got it from adults. And that is where what I think is just so unforgivable. And I mean, I really remember like the first time I really heard like language directed towards me that that was like so terrifying or horrible. And it was during the Iran hostage crisis, which was in the 70s. And I was, you know, we're not Iranian, but we're Muslim. And that was really one of the first times that Islamophobia, I think, really hit America. I mean, there weren't that many Muslims then, as many as there are now, because obviously we're a growing population here. And, you know, people in America, (laughs) anything that's different for some people is something that compels their hatred. I don't understand that as a concept at all. But I was a small kid, you know, I was little, like six or seven, I guess, seven or eight years old. And I was in the city of Chicago, we were in our car, and it was like a traffic jam. It was a hot, summery day, and I remember rolling my window down. And that was like old school, where you roll down the windows like with a hand, you know? Cranking. Yes, yeah, like where you have, you know, that gesture. I'm doing that gesture right now. You can't see me, like the roll of the window down gesture. <laughs> and so I rolled my window down because it was hot. My parents were chit chatting with each other up front, and you know, we didn't have stuff to play with in the car. We didn't have phones. You just like sat down and be quiet, and look out the window. And this car rolled up next to us in the next lane, and their, like, front passenger window was parallel to mine. And in it, I saw this man, and he was kind of like a young guy in his 20s, and the driver was also, like, a uh, young—both of them were white, a young white guy in his 20s. And the guy in the passenger seat rolls his window down, and he, like, points his finger at me, and he says, Go home, you goddamn fucking Iranian.
0: What the
1: fuck? And I was like— I was completely, completely confused. Like I was sort of caught in like deer in headlights kind of moment. And because then I remember him looking at his friend and laughing and then they, their lane moved up. So the car pulled up and it was sort of like a blur in some ways. But then I had like weird thoughts that I remember so, so clearly. And, and I talk about this a lot of times when I go to schools, because this was like the moment in childhood where something was shattered You know where the bubble of childhood is shattered, and so I remember thinking clearly. A couple things. One was I was thinking like, it's so weird that they don't know that I live in Chicago. Do they know that I live in Batavia? Like, how do they? Because you know, I'm not thinking like, oh, they're saying go home to like your whatever country your ancestors are from. I'm thinking like, wow, they must know that we live in the suburbs. Uh, I mean, that's like how much of a kid I am. You know. And then I remember thinking, well, it's weird. Why would he think that I'm Iranian? Because we're Indian. And we actually have like some Iranian friends because, you know, at that point, you know, when you come to a new country and you don't really have anyone like you around you, you try to, you know, find, of course, you know, a mosque or like a whatever. And so we had some Iranian friends and I was like, it is so weird because I don't look Iranian at all. And then I remember thinking like, wow, like racists are bad at geography. (laughs) And I was like a kid and I was like, I think don't even understand how the map works. And I think that that was like a very strong memory for me as a small child. And so when I think of racist things that have happened to me, Islamophobic things that have been said to me, I think of it so much more than just the kids who are bullying me for my name, which of course that totally sucks too. But I think so much of adults who are doing this and that's how kids end up doing it.
0: Clearly racism is still very rampant to so many people who don't look white. I know you're aware of coronavirus happening right now. There's, for example, Chinese Americans or people who look Asian.
1: Yes, exactly. Look, That's exactly the right phrase. Yep. Like anyone East Asian looking is yep. getting, I mean, I, I, saw, I see on Twitter like so many examples where people are like, my kids got called these names
0: in school or I was in the airport yep. and this happened. And I mean, Samira, I go into the subway And I'm so afraid that if I so happen to sneeze because of allergies, I'm allergic to dust. Or if I just like want to go like to clear my throat, because I've seen the videos of places where I get on and off the same stops, you know, for example, Grand Street Station in Chinatown. Um, Sometimes I'll take that train station. I see all of these things happening and elderly 80 year old, 70 year old people who are collecting cans from the streets to save some money who don't have jobs but are being targeted was getting beat up and called (gasps) called such nasty nasty names racist remarks like crazy by a group of men this elderly fragile person that is horrible that could have been my grandpa could have been my dad i go into these subway stations and people just it's like parting the sea you know, it doesn't matter I'm how so you, you know what that. I mean? It's fucking bullshit. And like, the fact is, I'm not the only one who goes through it. You go through your own type of hatred from other people too. It is not okay.
1: It's totally horrible. It didn't just takes. so, I mean, this, like right now, we're in the midst of this coronavirus and it, it, what, what I always see happening is it is always surrounds an event Yes, that has nothing to do with you. Yep. And that's like when you see these spikes, okay? Like baseline racism exists. Like literally, ask any Black American. Like yep. you know, that's that's every moment of their lives that they are having to contend with this bullshit.
0: Yes, exactly, a
1: thousand percent. And as Asians, we do have a, a lot of privilege that we that is not extended to you know our our you know Black brothers and sisters, etc. Yes. But like examples like this, like the coronavirus, or like for me, I lived in New York City uh, during nine yeah. 11, That Iran hostage crisis story that I just shared with you. Yes. There's always these spikes of racism and bigotry around these events. And it just, you really feel like, wow, this is the racist really coming out of the woodwork. Like, how are they beating up, a, you know, an uncle, a grandpa for just existing?
0: Yep. It just infuri- uh, my, it infuriates. infuriates. My, my hands are like all like clenched right now. Where I've had conversations with authors who moved to New York City happened right around the 9-11 time they get targeted.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that was partially what my first book came out of was, you know, I lived in New York on nine 11 and I was actually sick that day. So I was going to go into work late. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to sleep in and I was working at a nonprofit And, um, I got woken up from a phone call from my dad and he was like, wait, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, what's going on? He's like, turn on the news. And my old, the nonprofit that I worked at at that time, my office had like a direct view. We were like in midtown, but we had a direct view onto the twin towers. And that's when I saw what was happening. Like I saw, I watched on TV, the second plane hit the, the second tower. And, you know, I'm just like all the other New Yorkers, like totally horrified what's happening you know our city is being attacked and my friends work here i was just there like i was at you know there was the store century 21 you know that store yes A- of course across, <laughs> it's across it's across uh, it's like right there by where the trade you know where uh, the world trade center was and i had been there just like the day before oh my god and i was just like every other new yorker like just completely like horrified terrified scared for our friends and family who lived downtown who might be working in the area. And then that week I was at a memorial service at the mosque at 96th Street. And I was leaving... And these two boys started following me down ah, the alley. Are you fucking serious? Yes. It's like ninety six Street. And this is the middle of the day because it was like, you know, Muslims like Fridays are holy day. And usually the middle, the sort of the, the ta- the prayer time that we all gather is like noon time ish. And so I was walking down a September. It was like a, you know, beautiful, sunny day. I was just walking down the street to catch a subway on the East side and these two young men that were either teenagers or like maybe, you know, somewhere between like 17 and 21, I would say. They started following me down the avenue and, you know, New York's busy. And they just started calling me like terrorist and like <gasps> go terrorist and stuff like that. And I obviously didn't say anything because I was just. You know, I just had this image of how like at the mosque, everybody was wearing like American flag pins oh my God. because we th- somehow thought like this was going to be like the superpower that would protect us and like would remind them like we're here yes, with you. Yes,
0: yeah. Oh my God, that breaks my heart.
1: And the thing is, it's like New York, the most diverse city in America or, you know. Claiming to be a melting pot. Yep. (laughs) The city of immigrants, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, it happens everywhere. And like, just what you're talking about with this, with you, like in the subway, like, gosh, you can't like fucking sneeze
0: now. I know this community in 88 Cups of Tea, we're all very diverse. There's so many of them who have family members. They get attacked, you know, whether it's verbally physically on the daily basis that all these other very privileged white people don't have to go through. As you said, something that really struck a core truly is that it really begins with the adults, right? And the conversations, because Kids pick up on that. They learn at the dinner table what your parents or whoever your parent guardian is, your guardian is uh, saying, to then have those viewpoints. And it's a toxic cycle. You just pick up and you learn through generations. What is the best way to approach things where you're also kept safe, that you will not be physically targeted and murdered? And that's a real thing to be afraid of. Parts of me, I'm just like, I want to be like, fuck you, you racist. Like, you know, like really get up in their face. Another part, I'm like, I'm a tiny girl and one knockout, I could probably end up in the hospital. Let's be real. So I am the person who tends to have a big mouth. So a lot
1: of times I will yell back at people, especially in New York. So I always say to people, number one, I do it a lot, lot less because I realized that I was putting myself in danger needlessly. Like nothing I'm going to say to this person who's, whether they're catcalling, saying a racist name is going to stop them. That's not where the fight's going to be. Like the most important thing is your life, your health, your safety. Okay. Number one. Number two, when I speak, you know, I have this wonderful opportunity now that I get to speak to a lot of teachers, and I used to be a high school English teacher, and so when I speak to, like, teacher groups, I feel like, okay, listen, we're having – this is, like, an intro fam discussion right now, okay? So I'm talking to you, my family. I was a high school English teacher. I was, like, part of my teacher's union. I did all that, so – hear this, you know, this call is coming from inside the house in a good way, because most of our teacher population, for example, is white. And our student population is no longer majority white. Right now, the the population of of students in the United States of America is majority-minority. a (laughs) Minority-majority, sorry. How did I say that wrong? Um, (laughs) So one thing I ask them to do, and I'm asking all white allies to do, is number one, Find a way to sit with or to reconcile yourself with being uncomfortable. Okay? This is important. And this is important for all of us, okay? I say this like for to like my, my fellow Muslims, to my fellow Asians too, because we have to address anti-blackness, for yes, example. Yes. Or and homophobia in our community. Yes. Those two things I'm gonna just say especially. And so we all have to be number one, just sit with discomfort for a little while. And for some of these groups I'm speaking to, I'm saying like. Just sit with discomfort for the length of my speech, okay? I'm asking you to take this basic first step because you have to understand how you are contributing to the anti-blackness, to racism, to homophobia, to patriarchy, to all of these things. What are the actions that you as an adult who gets the privilege and honor of interacting with kids What is it that you are doing that you may be saying that you are bringing into your classroom, that you're bringing into your library, that you're bringing into your home that may be reinforcing these negative things, even though you yourself are like the good white ally, right? Because I think people just get their backs up so much if you just want to challenge them a little bit. But I'm like, look, part of my job is to challenge you like You know, I told you my mom always said, like, my name fit me so perfectly because I could not stop talking. (laughs) And here's me. I got the gift of gab right now. And I'm saying to you, I am challenging you to reevaluate, to reconsider how you even look at the world. Like, for example, when I see or hear teachers say, like, you know, I don't see color. I'm like, dude, no, that's the wrong way to go about it. When you don't see color, what you're saying is, I erase you. Yes. And why would you say that to, like, you know, the Latinx kid in your class, to the Black student in your class, to, you know, the Asian kid in your class? You
0: know, I compare that to when people say, hashtag, all lives matter. I'm like, are you joking me? You're literally erasing hashtag, Black lives matter by just saying all lives matter. Think of it this way. The English language always has
1: phrases that we understand what the additional things are. Black lives matter also. Black Lives Matter, too. That's what that phrase is saying. That phrase is saying, for too long, this country was literally built on the genocide of Native Americans and on the backs of enslaved people who are black, who were like literally stolen from their homelands and brought here. Our entire society is based on that, is built on that, all of our structures. That's what structural racism comes from. That's what it means. And when you don't understand that we are trying to address wrongs that are literally like baked into the system and you are just getting your backup about it and clutching your pearls, you are actually contributing to the problem. Even if you're a so-called quote unquote, like, you know, good, moderate liberal or whatever you conceive yourself as to really press yourself on. This is the thing I ask people to do. And then I say like the other thing that you must do and we almost do it. And I want people to try to do it in a way that feels safe for them. But I also hope that people can push themselves a little bit. So I always like, I rose at this one event and I was like, listen, this given's coming up. This is the perfect opportunity for you to practice this. And I always say, use your power and your privilege for a purpose. And it can be a very small thing. Maybe it's just like, hey, you are just gonna speak up right now and tell whoever's saying that racist joke or sexist joke at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you're going to call them out and be like, yo, uncle, cousin, whatever. That's not cool. And here's why in that situation, you know, maybe you feel like you don't have that much power because I don't know, maybe you are a woman, maybe you're younger, maybe you're whatever, but you do have some power because you are part of that family. And you have some privilege because you exist in this place of privilege. If you're like a white person, if you're an educated person, if you're a wealthy person, if you are, you know, a person who is a healthy person, if you have all, you know, all of our privileges, we all have different amounts of privilege, right? So I always just say what power and privilege you have, use it for a purpose and let that purpose be to better the world we live in. And maybe it's going to be a small way, but please just take that first step. Yes. Because once you take that first step, the next step is going to be easier. Yes. A thousand percent so calling out that uncle or that cousin, or like in your friend group, when someone makes a snide comment or when someone makes that locker room talk or, you know, says some kind of locker room talk or quote unquote, whatever that is the moment. And it might be kind of, maybe it's going to make you nervous. Your heart's going to start like, you know, palpitating a little bit. You're going to get like little clammy hands or whatever, but you still are safe in that situation because you've assessed it this is your opportunity to speak up mm-hmm. because then the next time you're going to feel more empowered to do it. And maybe the next time is going to be on an airplane when, you know, you're sitting next to an Asian woman who coughs and the guy next to her says something rude. And you're going to be like, listen, we're not putting up with that. That's mm-hmm. not who that's not what we're going to do with. And maybe it's like, you know, you're going to say something to the person on the train who says something to a black kid on the train. I don't know what the situation is going to be, but like every little step that you can take is building up your own power. Yes, oh to speak God. out, and so I just really want people to think about that because think of how often we ask our children to speak out. Yes, think of kids who are who are speaking out. Like I always think of, you know, I mean, there's just. Like the kids are Parkland, you know, Greta Thunberg, I mean Malala, yeah. um, you know, little Miss Flint, like Murray Penny, like she has literally single handedly for years been keeping the fact that Flint doesn't have clean water in the spotlight. A little girl. Yes. She started before she was even a teenager. Come on, like you two can make a difference and make it better. And I, I because I live in the world of, you know, words and books and I came from the world of teachers. I just know that the power that an adult can have. So I just ask everyone to think about the ways you can use your power to help a kid out.
0: Thank you so much for that, Samira. And I I especially appreciate when you gave examples to, for example, you're like taking advantage of the Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, trust. My sisters and I have ripped buttholes in my mom (laughs) everywhere and our elderly generation Oh, my family relatives they get nervous about our gatherings, especially if the all three daughters, me and my sisters get together, because they know some fight's gonna go. I think about like so much
1: with like because we exist in the age of me too right now. Yes. And I feel like I have heard so many dudes say things like, I don't know any guy who would say something like that or do something like that. So these are friends, like so these are, you know, colleagues or people our age, you know, your friend group. I always turn back and say, Listen to me, I am a woman that you know, and every woman that I know has been either, you know, at minimum harassed and at worst been assaulted. So if this is, if I am literally telling you every woman I know, then who do you think is doing this? Every guy, you know, like maybe you're like the one good guy who's never in your life made a comment, but I doubt the case because you might be doing it unknowingly, but it doesn't all build from just like all these steps, like just like the cat calling. Like, the locker room talk, okay? The things that you're saying about women when they're not present. Like, are you calling out the other dudes who are saying this? When someone's, like, making a comment about a woman's body, like, when women are present, are you speaking up? Yes, we definitely call out our elders— We're Asian. So we try to be as respectful as possible to our elders. Yes, You know, you're going to get the reverse beat, the other beat down (laughs) otherwise, but you know, you got to do it with your friend groups too. And also as a teacher or a librarian, or like, you know, say like you've got nieces and nephews or whatever the case may be, you got to do it for the younger generation too. I mean, you've got to find the right space and obviously the right tone to do it. Like, you know, you're not going to yell at a four-year-old little kid, (laughs) but you know, you you can speak to them in a way because they have heard it from someone else and you can try to you know, kids have an understanding of empathy, and you can help them understand, like, hey, that is going to hurt someone's feelings. And if you really, be- you know, we believe that all human beings are equal and deserving of our respect, et cetera. Mm-hmm little kids understand that. I mean, I was a, I was a high school teacher. I mean, I taught every grade cause I taught summer schools too. So I taught every grade from fifth grade to 12th grade. So wow. I have experience where I know that kids understand and kids are smart and, you know, give them credit for being that way. And also when your kid is calling you out, pay attention. Yes.
0: Calling you out for a reason. They know to be respectful. Well, most kids do. Yeah. Are you still teaching right now? No, I left the classroom a while ago. <gasps> to fully focus on
1: writing? Yeah, well, I actually did other stuff in between. So I taught high school English for a while, and then I worked in education nonprofits when I was living in New York. I worked at one education nonprofit that sued the state, that sued Governor Pataki for inadequately funding public schools. <gasps> and then I worked wow. at another organization that helped create new small public high schools in the city. What? Um, it was a charter at the time, but it was just, they were regular, like, small high schools.
0: Oh my gosh, Samir, you are a superhuman. Oh, oh, I don't Look think Look so. at Yes, you are. No, I'm so serious. So right now then, like you've done so much. You've done so much. I mean, hence why it lends to your work too, why it's such intelligent work and you're really putting good work out there that's making movement and changes. How about like right now, currently as we're speaking, are you... I'm a full-time writer now. Wow. When did that happen? So that just
1: really has happened gradually over the last you know, couple years because... After I left nonprofit, then I was doing like sort of some consulting, but still within nonprofit, like helping write development reports and, and stuff like that. But I really didn't know I wanted to be a writer, like a novelist, till I was much much older, like literally like forty. Really, um, you're kidding. You know, I, I say this a lot when I'm speaking to student groups too, because. I think there's so much pressure, like when everyone's always asking when you're a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I feel like, especially in America, we are always like, you know, the 30 under 30 or 35 under 35, like the list of like the hot list of like, whatever. When I was a little kid, like, you know, when you're seven and someone's asking you what you want to be, my, literally my top choices were ballerina, tennis player, and doctor. Oh, wow. Okay. Ballerina was because literally I just like tutus. I didn't even take (laughs) one ballet class. I didn't even like it. I mean, and then tennis player, I loved playing tennis, but I wasn't that amazing at it, but I totally had a Crush on like this tennis player from the nineteen seventies, Bjorn Borg. Fair enough, fair enough. And so I was like, yeah, this is the only way I can beat this guy. I mean, how, and then of course, doctor, because I was like, well, I'm Indian, like basically, I'm born half doctor, so I'm right. to do that one. But then I realized that I was totally scared of blood. So I was like, well, that's oh you can't really God. go to medical school when you're completely <laughs> going to faint if you see blood. Like, that's not going to work. So then I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a teacher. And I love teaching. So I taught. And then I worked in education nonprofits. And I kind of would write a little bit on the side just like for fun as a hobby. Like, I used to write... Poetry, that was kind of like my first entry point to writing, going back to like, I think your very first question an hour ago. Um, <laughs> poetry, I love poetry and I would read a lot of poetry along with like those mysteries like in the nook of the library and I would write a lot of poetry. Some of it was, you know, like high school poetry, like so angst written about like the boy I had a crush on from from afar and like all that. <laughs> and then I guess I started writing, I was like kind of into And again, I was doing this all for myself. I wasn't trying to publish it. It was just because I would write in my journal a lot. And then I would sometimes just write, you know, pieces. So sometimes I would write personal, like narrative nonfiction. Yeah. And then when I was living in New York, I started realizing I was writing more and more. And then I took a class at Media Bistro. I don't even know if that exists anymore.
0: I think it does because I've Definitely. definitely heard of it.
1: Yeah. So I took a class with Media bistro with this writer, this author named Steve Friedman, and it was a personal narrative nonfiction class. So we would write essays about our own life. And I remember thinking like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to write an anthology of like personal stories like these, like David Sedaris, but I'm not as funny as him. So <laughs> that was the first class where I was like, you know what, maybe I could actually do this because my writing was being pretty well received in this small group and by my teacher who was really great. And Then a little while later, I sort of had this idea for this story and it just like wouldn't leave my brain. And I was talking to my partner about it a lot of the time and about this young woman dealing with just like trying to live her life, you know, and growing up in a small town and having like dreams and ambitions beyond that town, but then having being hit by this wave of Islamophobia. And it goes back to that idea when I talked about when my first real Islamophobia experience, like I wanted to investigate this idea, like this moment in childhood where life is shattered. And so Mm -hmm. I kept talking to him about it. And he was just like, dang, why don't you just actually write it down instead of talking about it so much? (laughs) I was like, you know what? Sometimes you need that person in your life who's just like- Yes, give you that real talk. Exactly. Like you can talk till you're blue in the face, but that ain't gonna be a book. Yes. So then I was like, maybe I'm going to write this. And this is like so comical because of course I was an English teacher. I'd read like so many books, but I didn't, I didn't know how to write a book. So I'm literally like Googling how to write a novel. Like, how do you start? Like, what do you do? And then I I just was like on my own and figuring things out a little bit. And then that book became my first book, Love, Hate, and Other Filters. What? I mean, it was like a very long and winding road to get there because I wasn't writing like full time on that. I was working, you know.
0: Yes, you were busy supporting like yourself, like having a life. Like living in New York. I mean, huh. Exactly. That's nearly impossible. I mean.
1: So then I was just, I wrote like a draft of this novel. It was called Swimming Lessons then. And it was like way too long, 120,000 words, which is way wow. too long for a young adult fiction. And I was also like reading more young adult fiction to sort of just research that age group and that category of writing. And I was reading different genres. And then, then I would just tinker with a novel on and off. Like when I had some time, like I'd stick it in a drawer and then bring it out, you know, six months later. And then remember like, Oh yeah, I wrote a whole book already. Maybe I should do something with this. And then trying to just investigate publishing a little bit And then finally, I just, let's see, I think in 2012, I started trying to tinker around the edges a little bit more. And then finally, like in 2015, I was like, listen, if I'm going to give it a try, I really got to just, I've been doing this like for five years now. Like get your act together, Samira, like get, get this done and try to figure out how you find an agent and how does publishing work? Cause I was really, I'm a very sort of isolationist for myself as a writer. Like I didn't have a writing group per se. And wow. I mean, I didn't really at all. I mean, I took that class at Media Bistro like a few years before that, but I don't know. I'm just a very kind of write on my own person. What? I like to talk to other writers Just because I like to, you know, like I said, I I love to gab and I am an extrovert in those ways that I just love talking to people and I love talking about writing and I love talking about books, but I write like in a very solitary fashion. So then I finally kind of got serious about it. And at that time, my sister, I had moved out of, we had left New York, we moved to Hawaii for a year. And that's where I really finished the draft of what became my first novel. Then we moved to Chicago. And then I was like, okay, now I really got to get serious. And my youngest sister, Sarah, was working at a school then. She had moved to New York when I left in East Harlem. And she, her librarian was this woman named Danielle Clayton. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So then my sister was like, you have to talk to my friend, Danielle. And that was like, when I had just started the process of trying to find an agent. And so that's when you know, I talked to Danielle on the phone and she was really like the first person in publishing that I sort of talked to. So, I mean, what, how fortunate for me to have like the queen yes. become my friend. like. <laughs> And so, you know, she was giving me some tips and pointers on my query letter, and then I got my first agent, and then we sold that first book, and that became Love, Hate, and Other Filters.
0: What on earth? That is a crazy
1: story. You know, and I say that this kind of applies to my character so much, too. I write these stories about these young women who are always facing a world of no, and they have to learn to say yes to themselves. Mm. You know, I had a lot of different life experiences, and one of the things that I learned Through like all the you know times when you get like knocked down or whatever, is that everyone might be saying no to you, but you have to say yes to your own dreams. And if your dreams change, that's okay. There's not an expiration date on dreaming. Yes, I mean my dream was to be a teacher. I loved that job, and I loved working in education nonprofits. I mean, part of my job in an education nonprofit was literally traveling around the state of New York, talking to people everywhere about why all children deserve you know, the opportunity for sound, basic education. And that's a pretty cool job. Yes, it is. And then, you know, I helped to create new small public high schools. Those are all awesome jobs. And then I, you know, was hearing a whisper in myself that was, I want to write a book. And so I could have closed the door on that, but instead I was like, I'm going to listen to this voice. Now it took me like six years to listen to the voice. Mm. (laughs) Um, and, And it took a little bit of outside help with my partner being like, dang, sit down and just write the damn thing. I don't know. I'm just really, I just think that your dreams or your ability to dream doesn't have to end like when you're 25, Oh my gosh. like our society says.
0: This is so inspiring, Samira, because just in our private Facebook group, there has been some chatter going around how some of these listeners are at the cusp of wanting to give up because of how long the journey has been for them. And they feel like they're not Able to reach their dream for having a published writing career because of their age. And meanwhile, they're honestly, they're still considered young. Even, you know, they think, oh, 30s is old. It's not. In the grand scheme of things, it's still pretty young. I'm much, much older than that.
1: Yeah, it's not. I mean, I think that we live in a society that is very youth focused.
0: Yes. Like you were saying, 30 under 30 Forbes list. Exactly like what you said.
1: Also publishing, I mean, to be fair, just like a lot of industries is kind of ageist Yeah. and publishing loves the ingenue mm. and it loves the young debut. And I think, look, dang, I mean, I, I'm amazed by some of those stories too. I'm like, you knew that you wanted to be a writer when you were 17 years old, maybe when you're five years old, maybe when you're seven years old, you've been writing your whole <laughs> life. And I'm like, you know, hats off to you. Like you found the thing that moved you and that was your dream at a young age. And I think that's awesome. So for every young writer out there who's following that path that that was the one they wanted. I, I mean, I applaud you. I just back you up. I hope you keep going. But to all those writers out there who are like, well, I'm like over the hill. I'm like, first of all, 35, (laughs) you still got a lot of years to go. (laughs) 45, you still got a lot of years to go. I don't care if you're 70, you still can write. I mean, that's one of the great things about being a writer. You know, it's not like You know, it's not like my dream is to be in the NBA and I'm only five foot two and I'm like over 40. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, let's see, the reality, Samira, that is not gonna happen. But this is a dream that you can have. And I hope that people just put the work into it. You know, everywhere I go, I mean when people hear that I'm a novelist, they're like, Oh yeah, I want to write a novel. And I'm like, Yeah, great. And then they're always like pitching me their book. And I was like, you know, to be a novelist, you have to actually write a whole book. Mm -hmm. You gotta write Novel, like it can be like I always get people who are like who talk to me like it's just a hobby that I have. I'm like I'm writing a book a year right now. That's not just a hobby. That's like a that's a full time job. And you know, for a lot of people, that's a job that they're doing. You know, they're trying to do multiple full time jobs. Yes, they got to pay the rent. They got to have insurance. I have the privilege of having a partner who provides the insurance. What I'm able to do right now is very lucky for me. So I recognize there's a lot of people out there who don't have that. And I just know that sometimes it can be so frustrating. But listen, you write a page a day, you write a paragraph a day. Maybe you're like in the car line sitting there waiting to pick up your kid. Get Microsoft Word or Notes or whatever it is, Google Docs on your phone and write that paragraph. Yes. Also, if you can't find the time this day or this week because life is in the way then don't beat yourself up over it because you're just joining that world of no. You know, like I said, mm. a lot of times you face this world of no. Be the one who's saying yes to yourself. And saying yes to yourself also means understanding your situation where you are and being sort of gentle with yourself and saying, fine, today I couldn't write. Like, I personally, I don't even write every day. And I'm <laughs> I'm doing this right now. I mean, I'm not one of those writers who's like, if you don't write every day, then that you're not a real writer. I mean, sometimes I'm just reading. Sometimes I'm just cleaning my desk. Cause it's like a giant mess. Mm. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, dang, I got a lot of laundry to do and there's no towels. And I have, I have to spend a few hours doing some of this stuff. So it's okay. You know, I mean, just be a little gentle with yourself.
0: Thank you for removing so much of that guilt that so many people are feeling. Also to know that you're also under deadline and yet you still provide that kindness to yourself is a really great example for listeners.
1: One piece of that kindness to myself, and I say this, this is just for me, but I hope that maybe you can speak to at least one of the other storytellers out there, which is I am gentle with the language that I use mm. about my writing. Mm. So... What that means is I never say to myself that my first draft is trash. Mm. This is something for me. Maybe every other person is okay with it. So I'm just putting that out there. Your mileage may vary. But for me, when I was little, one of those racist experiences I had was this grown-ass man telling me, a kid, that I was trash that America needed to take out.
0: What a
1: fucking asshole. Words can be weapons, and I'm not going to use weaponized language against myself. So... I don't say that my first draft is trash. I don't say it's garbage. I always say it needs improvement. I always say it needs work. I always say I can make it better. But I don't say that it's trash.
0: Oh, my God. Samira, that was earth-shatteringly powerful. Thank you for that. Oh, maybe there's
1: some other person who needs to know that it's okay to say... Well, this first draft isn't the greatest I'm ever gonna write, but you know what it's not bad and I got the words on the page.
0: yeah, be proud of yourself. you have more words today than you did yesterday.
1: Yes, exactly you know I, I try to find the person who can encourage you like because of just my life situation and various familial and work obligations, I don't get a chance to go to I have not ever gone to a writer's retreat that's like one of my goals. <gasps> oh yeah but I did make Writer friends and I gravitated towards some of them, you know, like Danielle, um, who will get a text from me every now and then about like help, you know, <laughs> I need this. Or like Sandhya Menon is like one of my pals. Oh, she's so sweet, so awesome. And you know what? Look, our stories, our books that we write are really, really different, right? Mm-hmm. But she and I will just like text each other once in a while and be like, hey, what's your goal for the day or the week or the month, and how are you doing? And we try to boost each other and are just like the one who's like, you got this, you can do it. Sometimes you just need the pal there who's reminding you that you've got this. Mm. And so Sandy and I do that for each other. So she's, you know, and I have like other writing friends I've met that we can do that for each other, but it's just nice to have that person. And then you can remember, like, of course we all have doubts. Like sometimes I think like, really I'll start a book sometimes and be like, wait a minute, do I know how to write a book? Mm. <laughs> and then you text like one of those friends and they're like the Samira you can.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Sometimes you just literally need someone to be like, go to your bookshelf right now. Do you see those books that say Samira Ahmed? And like, it says like, you literally have a, have the privilege of having books that say New York times bestseller, like calm down, take a deep breath have some tea, take a walk, you can do this. So like, if you don't have those books on your shelf yet, that doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means, you know, be kind to yourself, find
0: your pal who
1: can help you out if you need it.
0: Tell me what you're most excited about right now with your writing. I mean, we know that, uh, well, when this episode releases, your book would have already just come out on April 7th. So your episode a week after. Yeah, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know is my third book. I'm so excited about
1: it. And you're going to have to sit down for this. I know you're sitting down. Metaphorically (laughs) sit down. This book, actually, the idea for this book originated in my bachelor's thesis. What? Yes, because I wrote my bachelor's thesis about romantic Orientalism, specifically looking at how Byron, Lord Byron, you know, the poet, how his writing was influenced by Napoleon's conquest in Egypt or attempted conquest in Egypt. And that came out from a class that I took with this professor at the University of Chicago, where I was an undergrad. And that was reading Frankenstein and like surrounding texts. And that's when I realized wow, Mary Shelley is actually a white feminist. <laughs> and there's this character of safety, this very, like this character written in this very flat, like Orientalist trope. And that sort of led me down this like long and winding path to Byron and this poem that he wrote, this like 3,000 line poem called The Jower about these two men who were battling over a woman who was in a harem. And the whole poem is about her, but she has no voice in the story. Mm. And Eugene Delacroix, the painter, was inspired by that poem to create a series of paintings. And the same thing, they're all about a woman, but the woman has no presence in those paintings. And so I wrote this thesis, and then a year later, I came to the Delacroix paintings and was like in Paris at the Petit Palais looking at one of those Delacroix paintings, the Jour battling the, the Pasha. And I was like, you know what? here's another thing where the woman is erased. And r- one thing that I can do as a writer is to give this woman her voice. Hmm. It was like such a long and winding road to get there. I wrote that bachelor's thesis in like 1993 or something. Wow. So that is in practical use. And I just had lunch with my bachelor's thesis advisor last week. Wow. I know. Cause I emailed him. He was still teaching there. And I was like, Professor Chandler, I wrote this whole novel that's coming out in April based on work I did for you in that class. Was he blown away and honored? Yes. He was like so kind. And then I had lunch with him and I it was able to give him the very first like oh my god! because I just got them in. And he was like, oh, I'm so honored. Thank you so much for the kind words. And the other thing that was awesome is that I showed him like his note to me on my bachelor's thesis. Like, you know, it was typewritten like on a literal typewriter. Wow. And I showed him that note. And the thing that's amazing is he completely remembered it. Like he remembered the work we had done and like the various things we had done to lead up to that thesis. He assigned me like these small papers because I was working with him just individually. He assigned me these small papers that led up to the thesis. I was like, how can you remember? So I was like, see, this is like the power of an awesome teacher.
0: Yes, it is. And oh my gosh, it's so funny because tying back all the way to the very top of the conversation about your work as teachers and the impact you have on students. And it shows like life-wise how you can shape them in life and to be a basic good human being, but also how it affects their future works and careers. Totally. That's incredible. Incredible.
1: I always think of my stories like when I get novel ideas, there's like two things that happen for me. One is I feel like there's always these like little puzzle pieces floating around in the air. And I, like I'm picking them up from different parts of my life or different parts of my experiences or different things that I observe and see. And then they sort of like click together. And I was like, Oh, there's actually a picture here and it means something. So this is what I'm going to write about. And then I usually almost always write a short story first. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I call it my treatment and I write the short story first. And the short story is not like the whole book encompassed in a short story. It's just takes the main character and writes a short story about them. And some parts of it end up in the book. So like in both my first and second book, In Love, Hate, and Other Filters and Internment, the first chapters had elements of the short story that I wrote. And for Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to know, it actually was two short stories that came together. So one was this story that I started writing about Paris called Steps, where the character starts by stepping in crap. And that actually starts my book. (laughs) Um, And then because it's a dual POV, Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know has a young woman now who's trying to discover the mystery of another young woman in the 19th century who's referenced in letters between Alexander Dumas, the writer, and Eugene Delacroix. So that character, Layla, has her own POV, which is a twist on that Byron poem that I referenced earlier. So I wrote Layla's whole story as a short story, like a long short story. Wow. And Then I was like, wait a minute, I think these two can be actually one story. So one young woman from now is discovering another young woman from the past and is saying, you know what, she never got to write her story. And I'm going to be the one who says, you know, we deserve to hear this woman's voice and we should write her story because it's not just the stories of men that should be front and center and that should always be in the spotlight.
0: Gosh, this is so freaking good. Okay. I need to know what was the most trickiest part about this book for you. And I'm wondering if it's a dual POV, but I could be totally wrong.
1: One of the things is when you do a dual POV, if you change or shift something in the first POV, it will necessitate a shift in the second because- these two POVs, even though they're in two different times, like one is the 19th century, you know, roughly around 1816-ish or so. And then one is like present day. But we're, we're seeing sort of connections between these young women. So getting those right was like, I literally took a giant long piece of paper and I drew a line across, you know, like a timeline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was putting down like the major events that happened to the characters. And then when one thing would shift... Because I was putting down the major events plus like how I wanted the characters to be connected. Sometimes it was just by an event that happened. Sometimes it was by a symbol or whatever. So they have to interrelate in a way that makes sense in the chronology.
0: Yes. Does does that make sense? Yes,
1: of course. So I literally had to just made a giant poster. Sometimes I was like, oh shit, now I got to read. Put this thing over here because I moved this one thing. Right. Why did I do that? <laughs> so I guess that would probably be the biggest challenge. It was a dual POV plus the fact that they're in two different time periods. Yes. So the characters are not speaking to each other literally, but they're speaking to each other metaphorically.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh. How? I mean, how long was this? I'm assuming there's a ton of research that went in, went into this.
1: There was a ton, but here's what's amazing is that I had done a lot of it unknowingly in the 90s. <laughs> Because yes. I did my bachelor's thesis, which I saved. And in the back of Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, you're going to see the sources that I referenced for the novel. But then I also have like things for further reading. And both of those things came out of my bachelor's thesis. So the what? bibliography in my bachelor's thesis is part of this book now.
0: What? That's insane to me.
1: So it did, I did have to research a lot, but a lot of it was done. I'd already done like a ton of the reading for my bachelor's thesis. And so then I had to do like a refresh because obviously it's been decades. So I had to like redo that. Luckily I got to be in Paris. So I got to see that painting. And there's actually two of those paintings. One is in the Art Institute of Chicago. So of course I wanted to see that. And then I even talked to an archivist at the Art Institute of Chicago. Wow. Because I was like getting, to the research, which is really cool because the way that Alexander Dumas came into this whole story was that I had come across in like my research, one line in an old journal, like an old newspaper written in Paris, where it said that Alexander Dumas actually owned the Eugene Delacroix painting that I was writing about. And that was like in my early research. And that's how he became a character (gasps) because I then called the art Institute. And I was like, I need to speak to an archivist. Like, is it true that Alexander Dumas owned the painting that's now in your collection. <gasps> and the archivist was amazing. And she was like, there's this thing called the catalog raisonne, which is sort of like the Bible of provenance. It indicates like how where all these famous paintings, like, who they were owned by, like how ownership changed hands and stuff like that. Oh. And she's like, yes, in the first Kellogg Raisonne that listed this painting, Dumas is listed as the first owner. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And she's like, but later on in like the 80s or whatever, there was a letter discovered like in the archives that showed that the, the painting was actually in such and such a gallery, the Le Brun gallery. So it couldn't have been owned by Dumas. And she was like, but you know, what? that's a cool idea. So you should just run with it anyway, because <laughs> it's fiction." <laughs> and I was like, yes, I think I will. And I just came across the photo when I was in Paris and I was, I guess I must've taken a photo. Like I was at this coffee shop. I was sitting outside. It was like the summer and I had st- just started writing the story. Like I have the notebook wow. and I took a picture of that. I don't know what it was for Maybe I took it for Twitter or something. And I was like, wow, there it is.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's literally the where it began. Just hearing the background, and this is just a glimpse, which is crazy to me. Just the behind the scenes of the actual putting the moving parts together is so much work. And so, yeah, that's
1: like when I was saying those pieces have to click together because there's one other tiny piece, which is that when I was an undergrad, I did work study, right? Cause I was yeah. paying for part of school and my job was to work in the special collections of the library. The special collections are the archives. And when I was there, the chief archivist said to me, Samira, there is this thing that we want to find for the hundredth anniversary of the university. And it's the faculty minutes, like the notes from the very first faculty meeting ever held at the university. Mm. And we think it was taken by this woman, this professor, but some were lost in the archives. And like the archives you have to understand are like two sub levels in the basement of this giant library. (laughs) And he was like, can you find it? And I'm a total nerd. So I was like, yes, I can. (laughs) I was like, I will cross reference like nobody's business. And I found it, found this like little note, handwritten note by this woman, Sophonisma Breckenridge. And it was like in her, these archival boxes and it just had not been cataloged properly. So, you know, sometimes in archives, things can be lost just because people, you know, way back in some time just didn't catalog that item properly. And you sort of have to just get in their mind and you're going to be like, okay, well, we think it was this year. Now this is X many boxes. And so which, in which of these files would someone have put that in? And then you just sort of have to find it. I, I mean, you know, cause things are lost in archives all the time. This is why I'm so interested in this. Like women's stories are always have been lost. Or never told. And so this, that's where the story is. Like, this is like the hashtag I'm using is write her story because like so many of these stories are just lost in history. Like so many stories from people who aren't in that majority, i.e. a white male.
0: Yes. Yes. And thank you so much for bringing attention to this. And truly thank you for doing this work that you're doing for all of us women.
1: It's, well, it's fun for me too. And, you know, I, I just mentioned Hidden Figures because that was this book and a movie where I was like, this is a story that existed not even that long ago, like in our parents' lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know this. Yeah. Like these Incredible black women who basically are saving the space program and the astronauts. Yep, their stories are erased. But now it's our job. I mean, I just feel like part of our job is to find some of those stories, even in fiction, yes. and to bring them out.
0: Samira, I'm telling you, I know you. You believe, like we're talking about, how you can control your own fate and stuff like that. But we were talking about how your name truly is like, that's fate. You are put on this earth to tell these stories, to expose these stories, to expose these voices. Like really, what can you not do? Like, calm down now. Like save some for the rest of us.
1: Oh my gosh. You're very kind and generous. I mean, and you should talk because you literally built a community of storytellers and like, you are literally single hand, like started this single handedly and with Moon's help um, to lift up all these voices.
0: Thank you. You're so kind, Samira. Thank you so much for that. Listen, I do want to end off. Can I throw in some rapid fire questions for you really fast? Is that okay? Oh Yes. Yes. Yeah. Go for it. What is the best advice you've ever received? And imagine all the listeners listening in are your little baby mentees.
1: <laughs> no pressure. Um, okay. So I'm going to just reiterate this because I said this earlier, but... I'm just going to say, say yes to yourself Yeah. because that is just so important. And obviously, I mean, say yes to yourself, like for good things. I don't mean like, I'm going to punch this person. I'm going (laughs) to say yes to myself. I'm talking about the real, real here. Okay. Like say yes to your dreams, even when they might seem far-fetched, but obviously build a foundation for yourself, ground them in reality. And I think that's, that's the advice that someone gave me, which was like, you know, Samira, you can, and I remember this was a teacher. I think this was, oh God, I want to say sixth grade, but it was like totally shoot for the stars, but realize that when you're shooting for the stars, you have to build the base for yourself to like get there. You know, you, yes. you shooting for the stars, you got to build the rocket ship. Yes. Well, I love that. So that was, uh, I wish I could remember the teacher. I want to say fifth <laughs> or sixth grade. That's it. Like shoot for the stars, but remember that you've got to build the path or whatever it is, the ladder that's going to get you there.
0: So good. Okay. What is one or a few small manageable steps that you'd advise or assign to them to make progress with their writing goals? Okay. So if
1: you are working on a project right now, if you have a project that you love and that you're working on right now, I want you to commit yourself to writing 250 words this week. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be a small goal. That's a page. Maybe you only have 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day and I really think that you can do it. Now that's if you are like already in the process. Now, if you are sort of stuck and you're like, I don't know what to write about, and you're like the wheels in your brain are turning and you're like, I have to write something, I want to write something, I'm stuck. I'm having writer's block say, I want you to write about something completely different and write still write 250 words. And it could be short fiction, it could be about whatever. You know what? I'm gonna say have it be about the first flower that you see. Mm. Okay, so I, I don't know why I just thought of that. I think it's because it's love spring that. and I'm thinking of flowers. So it, that can be a fictional flower. It can be whatever. But write 250 words. You can make it fiction. You can make it nonfiction. You can make it a long poem. Whatever you want. 250 words, either on your current project or 250 words on the first flower you see. The first flower is spring. Your favorite flower, whatever or, you know, choose your own thing. But I think 250 words is a nice little thing. So you could do a, a quick, like little short fiction bite. Yes.
0: I love the specificity that you always bring to this conversation. Love it. Now, what is a book or a few books that's your ultimate favorite that's helped you and influence your writing? It could be a craft book. It could be an amazing novel or TV show or movie that really you're like, damn, that is storytelling.
1: Okay. So right. This is actually a current one or pretty current, pretty new, which is if you have not seen the Watchmen, holy cow. Oh my God.
0: Okay. I'll watch it. I'll watch
1: it. So good. Oh, I, you listen to me. I can't even speak (laughs) properly. It was probably a, a virtually perfect season of TV. Wow. I loved. yes. I mean, I just thought it was so brilliant. Like all the pieces that they put into place. And I love how, when you finish it you can like you can even do a rewatch and you could be like aha you keep having those aha moments wow. if you know what the writers did i love the character arcs i love how they ended it i just yeah so please watch that okay well books so two books i'm going to say really quick one book that i recommend to everyone is this book called Exit West it's an it's an adult not YA but i think young adult readers could read this so young adults yes i'd say for anyone 14 above or whatever could read this it's called Exit West By Musin Hamid, and it's about refugees and the plight of refugees, but these two young people who are falling in love in this war torn land. And it's in a, he doesn't name the land that it is. It's literally like this very human experience of falling in love with somebody and yet being in this place that is being ripped apart. And then there's this element of like sort of fabulism in it because doorways start appearing. And if you can find a doorway, you can open that door and step into another place. So it's like the refugee experience where, you know, you see like these pictures of like Syrian refugees who are just like literally fleeing for their lives yeah. and on these like boats and, you know, trying to like escape to better places. But when you, if you can find the door and you can get through it, you can step through it into another place in the world that is, you know quote unquote, not war torn or is quote unquote, a safer space, but it examines not just the plight of refugees, but it examines these questions of our human existence. Like what does it mean to leave a place? Even if you're forced to leave it, what do you leave behind? What, what do you gain? What are the parts of ourselves that will always stay in the place that we left? And I think you can take that as whether it's a physical, like geographical change that you made, but even a change through aging or Mm. anyway, it's just like a brilliant lyrical novel. It is just so dang good. (laughs) Um, so that's exit West. And then one book that, you know, a lot of times I get asked the question, what is the first book that you saw yourself in? Mm. And you know, when I was growing up, I told you, I'd love to read. I was, there was never any part of me in any books at all. I used to read black poets because that was like the closest, experience I could find Claude McKay and Gwendolyn Brooks, Langston Hughes. Cause I was like, there's a tiny piece of me in this, but the first real, real time I saw it was, I was an adult and I was teaching, I think my first or second year and a colleague came up to me and she handed me this book and she said, this book was written for you. And that book was interpreter of maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. Oh. and who I think is an amazing writer um, also. And I even gave her a shout out in my first novel, of Another. <gasps> Those two, oh. Exit West and um, Interpreter of Maladies, they're just both such stunning novels.
0: Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to put that on my TBR list for sure. And please let everyone know where they can find you on social media to say hello. Of
1: course. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sam I am, and I'm going to spell that for you. It's S-A-M underscore a Y E underscore A H M. That's Twitter and Instagram, and at samiraahmed.com.
0: And that wraps up my conversation with Samira Ahmed. Samira, thank you so much for your heartfelt and impactful conversation. I'm so thrilled we got the chance to do this, and I loved getting to chat. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Samira on Twitter and Instagram at Sam underscore A-Y-E underscore A-H-M. To download her writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Samira's show notes page at 88cupsofte.com slash samira ahmed. To keep up with all things 88 Cups of Tea, this one is for you, Instagram lovers. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. We love posting Instagram stories, announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with favorite quotes from our content. And my favorite part about Instagram is our story takeovers from some of your favorite guests that have been on the show, just like Samira Ahmed. So make sure to head over to Instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea so you're all caught up. I hope you're all staying safe and taking good care of yourselves. I am thinking of each and every one of you, and I will catch you in our bonus podcast episode this coming Sunday. Talk to you then. Bye.